Great to uh, see you this morning, be here in this place to dwell together in this time and in this way with you. And again, if you're a visitor today, a special welcome. Glad you're here with us. So we find ourselves uh, in a sermon series for Lent focusing on the Old Testament book of Exodus. And a large part of Exodus, as I said last week, chronicles Israel's four decades of wandering around in the wilderness, in the desert, after being liberated from slavery uh, in Egypt. God did that. And God then led them into a place called the wilderness. Uh, And in this place called the wilderness, He began to show them the ways of true life. Uh, And they needed to learn that because here's the thing, you can be alive yet not fully living. You can be alive, yet not fully living. That's true. That was true for Israel. It's true for, for us. And so God took them out into the wilderness on purpose. It was not an accident. Four decades of on purpose wandering in the wilderness. And in this series, we're looking at some of the astounding stories, the profound lessons that Israel learned out there in the desert. And we're discovering how that it was in that place, out in the wilderness, that God actually communed most intimately with His people. You see, on the one hand, the wilderness is this place where the Israelites feel incredibly alone, afraid, confused. But on the other hand, the wilderness is this place where God reveals His glory to them in spectacular ways. Some of the most intimate, spectacular ways in all of the Bible, second only to the coming of Jesus Himself in the New Testament. That's what happens in the wilderness. Let me say something else about why we're doing this series. It is the fact that you and me and our neighbors, we can all feel like we're out in the wilderness sometimes. Some of us feel that way right now. What's that sound like? It can sound like this, okay? I am not in control right now. I'm not in control today. I'm not in control this month. I don't feel like I'm in control this year. Or it can sound like this. What is going on in the world, in this country, in our culture? I am beside myself. Or or it can sound like this. I'm worried I don't matter that nobody gives an at's rass about me. I didn't say a bad word. I know you thought I did. (laughs) That is wilderness talk. We all struggle with things like this. I struggle with things like this, and so do our neighbors here in Polly's Island and Merle's Inlet, Georgetown. That's why it's really, really important to understand that God is leading us just like He led Israel. He's leading us in our wilderness places too. And so guess what? When you find yourself in a wilderness place, that is where God is. That's where he is. We can find his life there. We can find greater intimacy with him there. We can hold that assurance because one of the great consolations of the Bible is that the wilderness is where God is. That's where he is. He's there when we do not feel in control and when we are not actually in control. He's there when we are not clear. He's there when we're subject to all kinds of confusion. He's there especially in those moments when you don't feel like you matter at all. Those are not moments of absence. Those are moments of presence. We need to rejoice in this together, and that's what I want us to do, and that's why we're doing this series. Now let me pray before I say anything else. Come, Holy Spirit, these words inspire and fill them with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, nothing else matters. Amen. So in Exodus 15, three chapters back from where we are today, something really wonderful happens. The Israelites are liberated from enslavement by Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, and as they march out into freedom, they go through the Red Sea and they're singing. They're making music and poetry and praise. But then Exodus chapter 16, the poetry and praise turns into panic. There's an apparent food shortage. And it's in that moment that God teaches the Israelites to trust in His provision. 
he shows them who he actually is. This is what we talked about last Sunday. Today, fast forward a little bit to Exodus 18. We meet Israel again, but they're in a different place. They're out of Egypt. They can drink water from rocks. That happened in Exodus chapter 17. There's puff pastry on the ground to make fresh croissants every morning. There are quails all over the place. They're just flying into their tent right into the frying pan ready to be cooked and eaten. It's wonderful. Israel has a lot of confidence because of everything that's happening. But it's time to learn a new lesson. Time to learn another secret to the ways of true life. Now this lesson actually starts in Exodus chapter 17. There's a battle that happens in that chapter, and in that battle, Moses is so exhausted that he can't keep his arms up. And in this story, keeping his arms up is what enables Israel to win the battle. If you want to know why that is, we'll talk about that another time. But he's holding his arms up. He's so tired, he has to have two people to prop his arms up. He is exhausted. He is plumb tuckered out, as they say around these parts. And now in chapter 18, we see God beginning to deal with that issue, that exhaustion. And he does it the unlikely and not always helpful source of Moses' father-in-law, a guy called Jethro. And the lesson is this, Moses is going to have to embrace his limits. And it's a lesson not just for Moses, it's a lesson for all of Israel. God is teaching Moses and Israel and us too that if we want to find fullness, if we want to come into true life, we have to embrace our limits. you got to embrace your limits. That's the memo here. I'm embracing my limits right there. Now, at this point, I need to ask you to forgive me for telling, some, telling you something you might already know. If you were a Christian between 1145 and 1153 A.D., you lived in an, area, an era of when a guy called Pope Eugenie uh, III was the Bishop of Rome. I know you know all about him, so forgive me for telling something you already know. Now, in case you're inclined to think of the papacy in terms of red slippers and golf carts, you need to recognize that Eugenie had a hard go. But when he came into office, there was a lot of conflict in his international congregation. Imagine that. There was intrigue in his court. And by that, I mean that the people of Rome would not let Eugenie come and live in Rome. In fact, his predecessor, the pope before him, died by being hit in the head with a stone that someone threw at him in Rome. And so Eugenie very wisely decided that he would not go live in Rome. And there was a war around him. This was the time of the Crusades. Not a great moment to be elected pope. Muslim-Christian relations were at a boiling point. And so everywhere Eugenie turned, there was tremendous amount of work to do, and he did it to the point of exhaustion. This guy had been called out of a monastery, a quiet life. He'd been called into the papacy, and that call for him was like going out into the wilderness. It was a call to a place where he had no control. He didn't know what he should be doing. Now, because he'd been a monk, and because monks have abbots as their leaders... He wrote to his former boss, a guy called Bernard, who lives in Clairvaux, France. Uh, and he said, Bernard, my former boss and abbot, I need some advice. I need you to write me a book on leadership, please. That's what he said. Now, if I were Eugenie and I were writing a letter to Bernard to ask for some advice on leadership, I would have wanted a book about how to, le- how to lead the Crusades without ending up on the wrong side of history. Let's talk about that. Uh, how to tell the cardinals what's up in 12 steps. Show me how to do that. Uh, how to maximize my papal effectiveness. Talk about that. That's what I would have wanted. But that is not what Bernard gave Eugenie. The book he wrote is called On Consideration. And in this book, what Bernard says is, if you want to be a leader of a limitless kingdom, you have to know your limits. If you want to be a leader of a limitless kingdom, you have to know your limits. Eugenie, he says, the only way you can be who you are called to be is to realize what you're not. To realize what you're not. 
See, apparently Eugenia was getting bogged down in a never-ending to-do list. And so Bernard, his old boss and friend, he wrote some strong words to him. Let me read you some of those words. This is fantastic stuff. He said, Eugenie, see how these accursed occupations drag you at their heels, yet you continue to give yourself wholly to them, leaving nothing of yourself for yourself. If I may present myself to you in the character of another Jethro, like Moses, you are spending yourself in foolish labor over things which are nothing else but torture of spirit, enfeebling your mind, voiding the grace in your soul. And what is the fruit of all this? What is it but spider's webs? There's hardly enough time left to give the poor body a little rest and to satisfy the needs of nature. How's that for hello from an old Boston friend? What you need to see is this. The Pope asked the abbot for a book on leadership, and the abbot replied, Know your limits. You've got to stop pretending you can do everything. And that's not just Bernard's unique wisdom. You see, that wisdom from Bernard actually flows from a deep well of Christian thought. It goes all the way back to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. You're going to rest one in seven days. And one of the key insights of this deep well of Christian thought is that when you wake up every morning, the first thing you ought to be asking yourself is not, what do I have to do today? But rather, what has God done for me and for this world, and how is that going to shape the type of person I am becoming? You begin with your limits. You begin by reflecting on what you are not rather than what you have to do today. And that is exactly what God is pressing Moses and Israel and us to do in Exodus chapter 18, which means that what happens in the chapter that Laurie just read for us is not an interesting organizational moment in the life of Israel. It's not some management theory for Moses. No, this is a moment of spiritual transformation. Right now, Moses thinks he has no limits. He's got water coming out of rocks. There's bread on the ground every morning. There's quail falling out of the sky. And he's been given something really important to do, lead all these people out into freedom. This guy is killing it. That's how we put it these days. He is killing it. Yet in the face of all this, God is saying to Moses, and through Moses to Israel, and through Israel to you and me, you've got to embrace your limits. God is teaching that fullness is achieved in part by coming to terms with our limits and with our finitude. That is what's happening in this text. Now let me tell you what I think is happening with us. Many of us know what it is like to have a completely disordered life. We live in a culture that teaches us to have a disordered life and then call it success, calls it killing it. You're killing it, man. A lot of us know this. A lot of us know we got things to do. We have big capacities. Some of you have really high capacities, in fact. And your response to those high capacities is just to try to continue to push and expand them, to make them grow larger and larger and larger, and to push your kids in the same way, always doing more and more and more. And I know that's a struggle around here in Polly's Island. That's one thing I've already learned in my first four and a half months, the way we can push kids in this place. And there's a lot in our culture that ritualizes this insanity that drives us to always be killing it while obscuring the fact that one of the problems with killing it is that it never stays killed. You, gotta, you always got to kill it again the next day. It obscures the fact that killing it all too easily kills you. In contrast, God is saying, if you want to live in the wilderness, if you want to find me in all those wilderness places, you need to embrace those limits, and you've got to recognize that they are real. So how do we do this? How do we embrace our limits? This can be pretty hard. And by the way, I speak to you today as a repeat offender. I am a repeat offender. Ask my wife. We're always working on this. Shouldn't use the word work. That's probably not the best word to use in that conversation. 
But as I spent time with today's text, I think there are two central aspects to uh, living in light of our limits. First, if you want to embrace the limits, you've got to return again and again to the story of God's love. And what I mean is this. We have to again and again and again return to the story of God's limitless, redemptive love for his people and make that the well out of which we drink. That's the point of the first part of Exodus 18. You might read the first part of this passage and you think, oh, this is nice. It's a report of a reunion between Moses and his father-in-law. Jethro comes into town. They crack some beers. They open some oysters. They reminisce on God's faithfulness. And then it all culminates in a big barbecue, a.k.a. a burnt offering and sacrifice to the Lord, verse 12. In fact, what we read in Exodus 1 through 12 is not just a reunion story. It has everything to do with what happens in the second part of the chapter, which is where Moses gets cured from working himself to death. Let me explain. Verses 1 to 12 are all about God's redemptive love. Just read the text. Jethro is hearing about all that God has done for Israel. The Lord overcame Pharaoh for Israel's sake. He is, we're rejoicing over all the good things that God has done for Israel. And what happens? Jethro hears that and he's super duper impressed. And he declares, verse 10, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. That might not seem that significant, but it is because Jethro, and you need to know this, Jethro was actually a priest for other gods. He was a pagan priest. So he's somebody working for the other team. But here we see this pagan priest worshiping the God of Israel. He makes a sacrifice. He eats with Moses and the elders before the God of Israel. They are all marveling at God's redemptive love. And so these verses, as a block, it's an ode to a celebration of God's redemptive love. God's love for Moses, God's love for Israel, God's love for the whole wide world, even pagan priests like Jethro. God's love for you and me. This part of the chapter is returning us again and again to the story of God's love. And that is not incidental to what happens next. Because it is only as Moses and as Israel see this as they return to that story over and over and over again, make that story the foundation of their lives, that they will be able to embrace their limitations or to make it a little bit more personal. It's only by returning to this story and making it the foundation of our lives that we can stop being what we are not, which is limitless, and start being what we are, which is limited. That's huge. And that's huge because it is not fundamentally our leadership that this world needs, but God's love. And so that's the first thing we're taught. If we're going to embrace our limits, we've got to return to that story of God's love over and over and over again. Second thing we have to do, challenge alert, challenge alert. What I'm about to say is going to challenge you a little bit. You've got to reorder the shape of your lives. We actually have to change. In the Bible, unlike in the church, the word change is not a bad word. And the Bible changes a good word. That's what God wants for us. So let me put it like this. We have to, as we remember what God has done for us, as we rehearse that story for ourselves between one another, we then have to reorder our lives. And this is what we see in verses 13 and following. The reunion festivities conclude. And the next day, the very next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around him from morning into evening. Long lines, slow processing. Have you ever been to the DMV? That is where Moses is working today. He's working at the DMV. And Jethro, being an observant father-in-law, everybody loves those, don't they? Uh, Jethro sees this and says, verse 14, 
what is this you're doing for the people? Why are you going at this from morning into evening? This is a great father-in-law, son-in-law moment. And Moses answers with a straight face, I imagine. I am doing this because the people have come to me to inquire about God. In other words, I'm the only one who can properly make a driver's license. And what does Jethro say in response to that? Oh, that's great. You're so special. No, that is not what he says in response to that. What he says is what you are doing is not good. In other words, I am not going to leave my daughter and grandchildren with you because you're going to bite the dust if you keep this up. That's what he's saying. So verse 19, I want you to obey my voice. I'm going to give you some advice. God be with you. Boom. The father-in-law has spoken. How about that exchange? Don't you love it when your in-laws love you in that way? And the upshot is this. Even while Moses is someone who sincerely believes the story of God's redemptive love, this is the censure, he is living in a way that refutes that story. He sincerely believes the story of God's redeeming love, but the way he is living is refuting that story. And isn't that the way it often is with me and you? In verses 1 to 12, it's all about God's love. But in verse 13 to the end, it's all about Moses. I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the one they've got to see. I'm the only one that can issue a proper driver's license. And Jethro is like, nope, you're not, and they don't. There's other people that can help you. So I want you to reorder your life, son. That's what his father-in-law says. And isn't it fascinating? You should notice this. It's fascinating. What we see here is a pagan priest telling the leader of Israel that he's living like a pagan. So what does this reordering our lives entail? Two things to mention. Number one, Moses needs to change by tending to himself. And so do some of you. Because some of you are not going to make it. You're alive, but you're not really living. You're not getting any rest. And I'm not just talking about sleep. And your kids aren't getting any rest. You're putting a lot of pressure on them. Or you're not protecting them from a lot of pressure that comes at them. We're not adequately rehearsing the story of God's love. We're not doing that for our children, for our spouses, with each other, because everybody's too busy. We're all too busy. We're exhausted. We are supposed to be juicy grapes, but instead we are shriveled raisins. That's a good biblical image. And so we need to tend to ourselves physically, but also spiritually. Otherwise, we're going to shrivel right up. In Moses' behavior, in all of this, it reveals a challenge that we know, that he's not really internalizing God's love. He thinks everything's on his shoulders. And the same can be true for us. We might not say that. In fact, we probably don't say that. But we act like that's true. We act like we have to be killing it all the time. We think it's all on us. But it's not. It's not. So when Moses realizes this, thank goodness he does. He takes his father-in-law's advice. That doesn't always happen. Shouldn't always happen. Uh, What does he do? He says, okay, going forward, there's some things I'm not going to do anymore. I'm going to stop doing some things right now. And that's really hard to do. But that's what we have to do sometimes. You've got to tend to yourself. It is about puffing the raisin back into a juicy grape. Like these guys right here are doing. I love that picture. I always have a favorite picture in every slide deck. That's my favorite picture in this one. It's about recognizing your limits and pursuing your work and making your commitments accordingly. Second thing Moses did, don't want to miss this, he turned to other people. Up, in verse, up until verse 24, Moses has been acting like he's the only one. He's the only one who can process those uh, vehicle registration forms. He's the only one who can make that driver's license. But there are a lot of people with him. He's not the only one that came out of Israel. And guess what? Some of those other people can speak for God too. 
they can make judgments as well. They also had God, have God-given gifts. So Moses, you need to move into the HR department and recruit some people to help you, and you need to do it now. That's what happens in verse 25 and 26. He does that. And the point is for us is this. We're in this together. We're in things together here at our church. We're in things together with other people at work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. And so responsibilities are to be shared. Some of us are going to have bigger responsibilities. Some of us smaller responsibilities. That doesn't matter. We're all doing it together. That's part of embracing your limits. Are you doing that? Ask yourself that question. Here's something else worth knowing. When Moses turns to other people, when we turn to other people for help, we're actually doing something really theologically significant. What do I mean? As long as Moses believes that God doesn't really love Israel as much as he does, that he's the one who's really helping Israel, as long as Moses thinks that way, and he clearly has a tendency to think that way, he's not going to let go of responsibilities. He's going to hold it all for himself. But when he begins to realize that God loves Israel more than he does, and that God has given other gifts to the people in Israel, he can let go. He can ask for help. This is about trusting God. That's what it comes down to. Moses is being asked to trust God. Not to say that he trusts God. We all do that. But to act like he trusts God. We do not all do that. To live it. Which means, by way of implication, next time you meet someone who's sitting there and saying, with a straight face, just like Moses did, I'm the only one who can tell these people what God thinks, or I'm the only one who can do this. You know what you should think in response to that? That person doesn't really trust God. She does not really believe God is working. But God is. And guess what? God clocked in before you were born, and he'll clock out long after we're gone. Now, as I've wrestled with this text, and I have wrestled with it this week, I was talking to Mike uh, about that the other day at our meeting, looked at my own life. I've been listening to some of you. I know a lot of us are struggling in this area. I know that I sure am. Many of us haven't really come to terms with the call to embrace our limitations. And we're not helping our kids to do this very well either. Or maybe the people who work for us, if we have some people who work for us. And so like Moses, we might just be wearing ourselves out or wearing out the people all around us. And, if, and we do this under the illusion that we have limitless capacity. So if that's you, here's a question I want you to ask yourself. Number one, where do you need to believe in God's love? Where do you need to return to the story of God's love? Some of you are working so hard because you think God doesn't love you. You think that you don't matter. So it's all about proving that you do matter. So that you can be stable. And guess what? You already are stable. God loves you. And you have glory and love and delight. And so you need to stop trying to make yourselves stable and important because God has already exalted you to the highest place with His Son, Jesus. That's reality. That's reality. If that's you, maybe the holiest thing you can do is stop. Stop doing something. Second question to ask yourself, tough one, where might I need to do a little bit of reordering in my life? I'm not looking at anyone in particular. I'm just looking around the room now, okay? If you're not taking care of your bodies or your marriages, if you don't really have any friends, prayer is pretty scarce. We're not reading the scriptures. We're not taking Sabbath. We're not doing anything fun and creative. And when people who love us talk to us about this, we say, well, I'm just so busy. Yes, you are. You're far too busy asking, what do you need to do today? And far not too busy asking, what has God done for me? And how should that shape who I'm becoming today? And when somebody challenges us on that, we say, I just don't have time. Right. That is the point. You just don't have time. 
And so you got to reorder your lives a little bit. And that can, that can take a while. That's not an instant thing. you got to be patient. You might need to ask for some help. I want to encourage you to be intentional if you need to do that. But do it. God loves you, and so you can do that. Okay, and Christ wants us to be people who wake in love and labor in love and rest in love and then lie down in peace. And I want to be more like that with each passing year than I am right now because that's a way of true life. And that's what God has come to bring us. May those who have ears hear. I speak to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.